0: You're listening to the Green Jumper podcast with me, Marcus Alton, the editor of the Tribute website BrianClough.com. My guest is someone who played a special role in Brian Clough's memorial service back in October 2004. On a stormy night, with thunder and lightning, Nicholas Henshaw, who was then a priest at Derby Cathedral, led the service, accompanied on a covered stage by his colleague Elaine Jones. And he's now the Dean of Chelmsford, and I'm delighted to say he's here to look back at that historic event. Thanks for joining us. It's
1: great to be with you, Marcus. Great to be with you.
0: Now, I mentioned it was a covered stage. I guess because of the awful weather that night, it was a good job it was covered, well, sort of, except except it didn't
1: really work um, because we had the choir there, we had various clergy, and of course it was the stage set for the family and for Jeff boycott to do their tributes and so forth. Yes. And and what what I suppose we'd underestimated was why we shouldn't have had cushioned chairs there because although it was covered, it was not entirely a tent; it was a roof. And so when we actually sat down, well, you can imagine what happened because oh, the seats were absolutely they were like sponges (laughs) my memory was and we we wore our best robes of course and so they got completely soaking but the great dry cleaning afterwards was a a great
0: blessing well you coped uh, admirably i must say i I didn't know that but i I remember you beginning the service by saying brian always liked the the pitch to get a good soaking and um (laughs) here's here's a a snippet of of your introduction um that night so i'm just going to play a little bit of it
1: And when when the thunder thunder roared, roared, was it God or was it Brian? An enormously warm welcome to this celebration of the life of Brian Clough. As you know, originally, this started life as a service in Derby Cathedral. Within 48 hours of that plan hatching, a service on neutral ground where several thousand could take part, it became clear that the scale of this event would be something quite, quite different. The keynote of this is the gathering of people from so many different parts of Brian's life, famous and very ordinary together, to celebrate a person whose profile in the East Midlands was second to none and whose reputation as a human being was truly international.
0: Does that bring back some memories?
1: It really does. Gosh, I
0: still sound the same.
1: That's quite good, isn't it, all these years?
0: (laughs) It is, isn't it? Yes. It really was a memorial service like no other, though, wasn't it? Well, I think it was an extraordinary experience from the very outset. Of course,
1: Brian had been, his funeral had already taken place, which, you know, uh, very quietly with the family. And I remember the first meeting with the family. You know, How do we do a memorial service? How's it going to go? And then you realise it was going to get bigger and bigger. And we had a meeting with all our comms people and all our logistical people. And the, and then, of course, the police showed up in a good way. And they said, actually, the capacity of Derby Cathedral, we cannot guarantee people's safety. And actually, that was actually a really important moment. I don't mean just because of the scale of the event. But I think one of the issues for the Clough family was that how do you, how do you ever reconcile Nottingham Forest and Derby County? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. the running issue for all this. And so we thought, well, at least the cathedral's neutral, but it is Derby Cathedral, so it's got the name there, hasn't it? But when we moved it to Pride Park, of course, the Nottingham Forest supporters said, oh, that's fine, because it wasn't, you know, it's the cathedral at Pride Park. And I think that's what we put, actually, on the service order. And I think that really helped heal. I, I, it wasn't simply that Brian Clough Way then became the main road again. So even that birth, if you like, of the, of the, of the service was extraordinary, like the man himself. But gosh, the service was was something else.
0: How difficult was it to actually transfer all the plans from what you had thought would be at Derby Cathedral to such a big football stadium?
1: I thought it was going to be a logistical nightmare. I also weren't worried about the scale, um, and we very much wanted you know things like the choir to be there and so forth. And we had people carrying crosses and candles in 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 our rich robes. So in a sense, what we did was the service we'd always always planned. But, but in a different venue. But somehow that worked. Now, I, I sometimes don't quite work out why it worked, because on one level, it was a ridiculous thing to do. You know, lots of robes and a singing choir, although I think that gave it a kind of formality, which held it. And so it wasn't just an event. And I, and I think actually that's what the Clough family wanted, really, that, that it wasn't just an event to memorialise Brian. It was actually a service in which we held that before God in prayer, there were readings and so forth, whilst, of course, there were a lot of tributes. But as you say, the weather... I mean, if in Derby Cathedral, the rain wouldn't have got through the roof. I- I mean it was like steroids coming down from heaven yes. i don't think I, I remember i was doing a, i was doing an interview with sky sports or something and i looked out into the stadium i thought we're not going out into that are we i mean it was unbelievable it's on the worst weather i've ever experienced in derby or anywhere else Extraordinary. a sign of the power of the man maybe
0: yes that that's right and in fact barbara said in, in the service didn't she that uh, maybe it was uh, brian telling everyone he didn't want any fuss <laughs> but uh, i remember reporting uh, i was reporting outside the ground with a radio car with a huge mast on it and there was thunder and lightning and I knew at that point the mast had to come down uh, for, for safety. It really was uh, quite a night. Were you nervous in the run-up to it?
1: It's a really interesting question. I always find I don't get nervous before things but I know I feel exhausted afterwards. Um, it was the biggest event stroke service I've ever taken. I think what helped me is as, as you know, I, I worked at BBC Radio Derby throughout my time at Derby. I did the Sunday morning slot, six till nine every Sunday morning, and and so I felt very at home addressing that audience, uh, considerably larger than you know typically typically get. But I think I think what I find fascinating about those big events is actually your nerves just melt away when, particularly in a context which is fundamentally pastoral. What we were doing in the end was curating an event for a grieving family. Uh, and and in a sense, that's our bread and butter on one level. So you're responding to their need, at which point I think the nerves melt away because it's not about you. I think I think that's that's what, I, I guess I say that as a priest again and again, it's not about me, it's about enabling something for other people. So I think we did feel, I mean, we, we felt we'd... Rid- we felt absurdly nervous beforehand, yes. you know, and, yeah. as, as you know, the cameras everywhere, the radio everywhere, and famous footballers. Now, I don't know tons about football, but famous footballers that even I recognised wandering around all over the place. And and that extraordinary, that overexcitement, almost like, you know, Christmas Eve and stars in the sky, where where every every sensor was heightened, wasn't it? Every sense in that place was heightened. And actually the weather played its part in that. So I think that did all... all come together as a kind of, ooh, you know, quite a quite a big thing in your stomach. But I think once we were out there, I think this is going to be a really, that may sound a really stupid thing because this sounds like a football match rather than a service. I felt the crowd was with us. Yes. Yeah, you know, from the first yes. moment we were in there. And they kind of got it, the ceremonial, the formality, all these funny vicars getting up and doing their stuff. So, So as soon as we were in there, it felt like home territory.
0: Yes, and uh, as you say, there, there were thousands of fans there for, from various uh, yeah, yeah. different clubs, but most notably both Forest and Derby. And it, it really takes something to get those fans united, and they were that night.
1: I agree, and that was a beautiful. That was a beautiful thing about, as I say, the the kind of change of venue thing made that possible, uh, and therefore it didn't feel like war. It felt like it felt like loyalty, and I, I think that really changed the atmosphere in a beautiful way. Uh, So, so being held by the crowd. I think you're always doing that, aren't you? And you know that with with any kind of broadcasting, any kind of preaching. uh, I often think, like, like like I often watch stand-up comedy, and and you see how a stand-up comedian is constantly responding to their audience. And I think, I think that's what you're doing in those contexts. So, although, of course, we had a script and there was lots of formality about it, at the same time you're you're constantly. Even with all those thousands along the terraces, there you're still responding to the crowd and how it feels and where it's going, and and that's when you begin to think. I don't mean it's like it's like it's almost like surfing at that point. You know, you, you're actually you're you're holding this thing together.
0: Yes, it was a huge responsibility, uh, I guess, on, on that night, and and the cathedral choir that they really coped brilliantly, I, I thought, with, with the weather conditions especially. Uh, and there's a, a little clip here I've got. Um, that we can just remind ourselves. famous football hymn, of course, Abide With Me, that they did really well, considering, as you say, that they must have been soaked to the skin.
1: The the amplification was good. That makes all the difference. Yes, I I mean, soaked to the skin, uh, quite small children, some of them, on on a vast field, the biggest arena they'd probably ever been in. And, you know, they did. And I I think that's, again, I think, I I, I say this, you know, I run a cathedral now down here in, in Essex. I think one of the things about cathedrals is you're constantly delivering professionally. And therefore, we're good at, you know, we, we should be, we, you can rely on us to yes. deliver, I suppose. So that night, I had no questions about my director of music or the other musicians or the choir boys. I knew that they deliver. And again, I think that's part of what builds the confidence, doesn't it? We're here not to be overawed by a great occasion, but to serve a great occasion and to serve the memorialization of a, an extraordinary man.
0: There were lots of different tributes that night that, that were. Said on the stage, were there any that stood out for you looking back?
1: The the, the two that really stood out for me were Nigel's and Jeff Boycott's. Uh, We we got to know Nigel a bit during the preparations, and I thought it was it was a beautiful tribute by a son to a father, Uh, and and it's it was it was it was beautifully normal, I suppose, the the way of putting it. You know, it was nervous, it was it was concerned, it was you know a grieving son, and, and I found that very moving. I think the Jeff Boycott one, and you know, whatever one makes of Jeff Boycott, it, it was a supreme performance. Uh, it, was. it was really quite scary, but it's really quite scary being that near him, you know, with that hat on, standing there <laughs> delivering this kind of very powerful talk. And I was like, oh, oh yes, this is quite interesting. Um, so uh, those were two that very much stood that. And of course Barbara herself came on stage at one point, and, and that was very beautiful.
0: That's right and you're talking about Jeff Boycott there and yes he was a very imposing figure with that big hat on he he said that um, people thought that Brian uh, was brash and outspoken but those that thought that didn't know him really well he said he was a warm and generous person with a heart of gold and uh, he recalled a day when Brian used his man management skills to give him a boost
2: I remember one day he came to watch me at Chesterfield it was a gorgeous sunny day lovely batting pitch and I got myself out I was so upset I stayed in the dressing room I was very disappointed and downhearted and after about an hour he came into the dressing room he said I know you're down he said but look at them outside your teammates they aren't sure if they'll ever make runs he said you, he said you'll make runs if not today tomorrow and if not tomorrow, the day after. He said, you've got talent, young man. And he made me feel 10 feet tall and yet I'd failed. And I always felt that was his real strength. He was a genius at man management.
0: A real insight into the relationship there between Brian and, and Jeff Boycott.
2: Absolutely.
1: And I guess that was a the theme of the evening, wasn't it? Was was that it, this was not just some well-known person in the life of football. This was somebody for whom those relationships, those friendships, those... Well, well and sometimes the opposite, of course, but the way in which um, he'd actually... And that, well, that seemed to be a key in what so many people spoke about in how he'd managed footballers. It actually wasn't about telling them what to do. It was showing them by example, inviting them into relationship, and that sense of friendship was really crucial, yeah.
0: Um, there was also a tribute from Father Frank Daly, who knew Brian and said everyone knew of his public persona but not everyone was aware of his kindness away from the spotlight which I thought was quite an interesting perspective and a little clip of, of that here now
3: What not many people do know are the things that he did quietly in so many acts of kindness for very ordinary people Those ordinary people who will miss him because they felt he was their friend.
0: And I guess that's quite an important point because the fans who were there did feel he was their friend, didn't they?
1: Exactly. And, and that was a unique feature of somebody whose character on screen, so to speak, or public life was was quite adversarial, um, quite, quite a, a strong presence. So, uh, yeah, and Frank, because Father Frank had done the funeral himself already... And it was a close family friend. And so he saw what we, we only glimpsed, really, which was the personal life behind the scenes, which was remarkably normal. Now, this is a normal family like any other family in the end. And therefore, seeing human kindness, and generosity is just part and parcel of that.
0: You mentioned um, some of the star players who were there. And I think um, Father Daly spoke a little bit about that. He spoke of Brian's uncanny ability to make men written off as has surpass their expectations and perform like gods. Uh, and of course, in the stands, that there were players he'd inspired. Um, did you get a chance to speak to any of them?
1: Well, we were—I think—we were a bit in awe. It was quite <laughs> yes. funny. It was quite funny because you know suddenly you're—I mean, this is a world where you know we bump into the Queen every now and then when you work in cathedrals and things mm. like that. But there's something extraordinary about—and this is quite a long time ago. So, mm. celebrity culture wasn't like it is today. No, you know, it wasn't. It, the, the, these these were kind of. Gods of, discre- gods of television and, 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 and football pitch. So so we saw them as people apart in, in, a, in a respectful way, it seems to me. I do remember... And I think it was one of our choir boys trying to get autographs. (laughs) And I thought, actually, it's not really the night for that. But also, you know, you'll remember it yourself, you know, in all those spaces around Pride Park, that you suddenly see an interview going on. You think, oh, oh, I know who that is. And you think that's, oh, yes, and I I actually don't quite know how you talk about that. I I also think for us, for us, I suppose one of the reasons we didn't do loads of socialising before the service is like you don't in church. you actually... I think get us get ready for the match I don't really keep getting ready for the moment yes and I think we weren't stressed as I said we weren't terribly nervous but we actually really need to center down to be ready for that so we were we didn't want to get engulfed into too much excitement except that, that buzz in the stadium was extraordinary
0: yes yeah well I, I guess like a football manager like Brian Clough you wanted to be focused on the job at hand and not be distracted and he right. prob- he probably would have re- respected that i think in uh, in many ways um you you mentioned there wasn't the celebrity culture then do you think it was good that there wasn't social media in those days because people would have been more interested in getting the best photos and the best selfies
1: Isn't that a problem? I mean, I don't know what we do about that. And I'm very clear that although we use social media here at Cathedral very effectively, but we use it as an institution and I don't use it personally. And I think that's undermined so much of our our understanding of relationships, uh, public life. And I think it's compromised people in, in so many ways. So I think it's brilliant that it wasn't around in those days, because I'm sure it would have been great to get 10,000 hits on the cathedral website or something like that. But that's not the point, because it seems to me that undermines our our fundamental aim, which is something to do with the wider community. It seems to me what we were doing that evening, as it seems to we were doing all the time, is recognising somebody who wasn't just a football star or a great Derby bloke, or a great Nottingham bloke for that matter, but actually somebody for whom the wider community was significant, and he was significant for them, which is why the road got renamed after all. And it seems to me that can get so easily destroyed when it's just all about tweeting my selfie with, with X, Y, and Z. So, so although it was a kind of celebrity event, it wasn't celebrity culture. These were normal people.
0: Uh, one of the tributes I remember from Martin O'Neill was quite amusing. He was um, talking about Brian, and he'd been asked to sum Brian up in three words, and he said, "Well, Brian would have been insulted to be summed up in three volumes," um, which <laughs> sort of sort of sums things up quite nicely, really. And uh, we've got a little a little clip of uh, Martin and uh, looking back at the day Brian arrived at Nottingham Forest.
3: It was a cold, crisp January morning. The new year of 1975 had hardly dawned when the Nottingham Forest dressing room burst open and a youthful, self-confident genius with no apparent scars from the vicissitudes of football management stepped inside and changed our lives forever. Barry Butlin may have been the only face he recognised that morning, but we certainly knew him. And for the next five and a half years, with Peter Taylor by his side, he was to take us on the most wondrous journey imaginable. Even more incredible than the fable of the Pied Piper of Hamlet. To his tune, we danced to promotion, the ultimate championship, various trophies, and the unimaginable triumph of not one, but two European Cups.
0: Martin O'Neill there. It was incredible, really, to have so many significant names on, on one stage, wasn't it?
1: It, it was. and the, But again, I, I mean, isn't there something here about, about Brian Clough's reputation in the public mind and actually the affection in which he was held? Those were different things. So, and he rather liked that, I suspect. He was a man held in immense affection. Yeah. And, that, and that, not just in the heart of his family, but in the heart of the culture. And and with his peers, in terms of, you know, fellow footballers. So
0: that's what came out that evening. Did you ever meet him at all?
1: No, never. No. It's great, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I've met the Pope, I've met the Queen, but I've never met Brian Clough.
0: Would you have liked to have met him?
1: I think mm. it would have been brilliant. And I think... I mean, I love Derby dearly. It's where we're going to retire in about 10 years' time. Mm. Um, I'm a huge fan, and, and our kids you know, love being there. So uh, those characters that make a city, those characters that make a region. So I'd have loved to have met Brian. It would have been a very great privilege.
0: Yeah, looking back at, at Cluffy's life and how he overcame the obstacles of a, a career-ending injury and then went on to such unprecedented uh, success and achievements, uh, what was special about him for you?
1: Well, in the end, I'm going to use a really stupid word here. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of, you know, it's kind of in a priest's vocabulary, this word. But fundamentally, I think what's crucial about someone like Brian Clough, and I'd say it's true of a lot of people who who we'd never think of in this way, is something to do with humility. And now, it's not an obvious word to use of a man in public life who behaved like he did. But actually, what he saw his life as, it seems to me, in every aspect of it, but particularly in the context of professional life, was actually helping other people flourish. Mm. That although people think of him as a big ego, actually the ego wasn't about him; it was about what he did for other people. And I think that again we reflected that in the in the service hugely. And I think Nigel's contributions to that were particularly important. So, so you, I don't think people think Brian Clough
0: humble. I actually think that's the most important bit. And what's your lasting memory of that particular night? <laughs> <laughs> My lasting memory, and I don't know if it was ever caught on film properly
1: was as we as, as we processed out yes. there was a mini mexican wave through the crowd ah wonderful. And, and i thought this is never going to happen again you know at the, at the end of a service however great i'm not going to get a mexican wave again no <laughs> <laughs> and i thought but i thought again that really summed it up if we'd been yeah. in a cathedral that wouldn't have happened if it had been a solemn occasion that wouldn't have happened and if we hadn't got the crowd on our side that wouldn't have happened but instead that felt like all of us together um, all of us together saying something really important about what we we're celebrating and we could do that so freely.
0: Well, a Mexican wave, a fantastic memory from a, an incredible night. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you Nicholas Henshall. thanks for sharing those special memories.
1: Thank you Marcus. It's been a privilege.
2: was provocative and fascinating but he had a clear picture of the way he wanted his teams to play football which was on the floor passing the ball with great defence. His teams often won the fair play league and yet they still won trophies and it wasn't luck that brought his teams success and himself success. It was a unique style of management that we had never seen before.
0: You can also see more tributes and read about more memories on the tribute website brianclough.com I'm Marcus Alton the editor of the site and I'll look forward to speaking to you again soon and sharing more memories about the great man in the green jumper